Our next speaker is going to be speaking on steps eight and nine, and um, he came up from Polka, and I'm really grateful for that. Uh, I finally had the opportunity to meet him in person today. I had the opportunity, the, the blessing, to be able to listen to him do a 12-week step series down in Fort Lauderdale at Alcoholics and God, because I live up here now, and because of work, I can't get down there for it physically, but Mike podcasts him on his, on his site. Which, uh, if you're interested in that, you can talk to one of us after the meeting to find out about the site. And uh, so I was able to listen to Tom's full 12-step series down there, and uh, I really enjoyed it. And I'm really looking forward to him cutting up here and doing 8 and 9 with us. And uh, so without further ado, we got Tom M. from Boca. Oh. Hi, everybody. Everybody full and ready to go to sleep now? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> My name's Tom, and I'm an alcoholic. Hey, and uh, I'm a, I always get afraid that this thing might be a little too sensitive. You know? <laughs> Stop be r- laughing, Russell. Russell knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> My... Uh, some people know me, but most of you don't, and so maybe I should tell you something about myself. Uh, besides being an alcoholic, you know, I'm a maniac. <laughs> I uh, belong to the uh, Boca Men's Recovery Group. Uh, that's my home group. It has been for the last 20 years. Uh, my sobriety date is... December the 9th, 1983. Uh, Boca Men's Recovery meets on Tuesday nights at St. Paul's Lutheran Church on Palmetto. Uh, I'm a real strong believer in in having a home group uh, because I was raised in Alcoholics Anonymous by a man who taught me that if you got a sponsor and you haven't got a home group, You need to fire the sponsor. This fellowship saved my life. And in spite of me, you know, because I fought it. I fought it for a long time. Uh, I first uh, stepped through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous uh, in 1973. Um, I was 21 years old. I'd been having... uh, uh, drinking problems ever since I picked up a drink <laughs> at 14, and along with everything else that came along with it, you know, all those so-called dry goods that we like to talk about. You know, that's all part of me. It's all part of my story. Um, you know, I, I don't know why I was thinking. You know, I. Well, I came to Alcoholics Anonymous because I was in trouble. That's what I came here for, you know, to get out of trouble. I didn't come to Alcoholics Anonymous for anything else. I really wasn't interested in anything else. You know, all I was interested in was I was in trouble. And so, you know, I figured uh, right away after the first time I hit AA that it would probably be a good idea to hang around in Alcoholics Anonymous for a while because I was going to have to go in front of a judge. And, you know, I, did, I couldn't afford to get in any more trouble 
in that period of time when I was going to get to that judge, see. And, uh, you know, uh, there was a lot of nice people in AA, you know, and I used to go to young people's meetings, uh, you know, in 1973, and the people in young people's meetings in Fort Lauderdale in 1973 were in their 40s. Those were the young people in AA. So I was 21, and, uh, you know, look, I was way too young, uh, you know, to stop. You know, look, I just wanted to get out of trouble, you know. And, uh, you know, I was also a dope fiend. And so, you know, for the benefit, because there was Narcotics Anonymous in the 70s in Fort Lauderdale, you know. And so for the benefit of dope fiends like me, dope fiend alcoholics who were in AA because they had no place else to go but to Alcoholics Anonymous, they used to say in Alcoholics Anonymous, we don't drink and we don't take any mind or mood altering drugs. Well, I could hardly wait for the meeting to get over, you know, so I could get out in my car, reach underneath my seat, pull my bag of weed out, roll me up a nice big fat one and start toking on it and I'd tell myself, This doesn't alter my mind or my mood. It enhances it. (laughs) This is is a mood-enhancing drug. It doesn't alter my mind or my... I mean, I I can see how all the LSD I took, you know, and mescaline and psilocybin and the mushrooms I used to eat, you know, and the amphetamines and the barbiturates, you know, and the heroin that I started sticking in my arms... I could see how that might have, you know, altered my mind or my mood, but this weed sure isn't doing that, I mean, because you know what, you know, I mean, none of that ever got me thrown into jail yet, you know, because when I first came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I hadn't been to jail yet. But in the 10 years that I went in and out, I was in jail more and more and more until in the end I was in jail all the time. And there were people who really tried to help me. You know, a lot of people, and, uh, and, and one of my favorite people that, in fact, this, uh, this big book belonged to him. It's, uh, it says in here to Jim, your friend always texts, Robert L. Stryker. April the 19th, 1976. The 101 Club, when he died, put a flagpole up in a, in a, in a little concrete thing with a brass plaque on it. And, of course, you know, us alcoholics, somebody stole the brass plaque, you know. They, they, they really loved text, you know. They figured the rest of us, you know, could do without that brass plaque, okay, and Tex really, you know, he, he, he used to tell me, he'd say, you know, I'm your sponsor. And, uh, and I used to think, well, that's nice, you know. I mean, Tex is a nice guy, you know. And, and, and I liked him because, you know, he dressed in all cowboy clothes, uh, you know, with the, the roses. And, and uh, he even wore a silk scarf. Of course, he was from New Jersey, you know. But, uh, <laughs> When he, when, he, when he drank, he said, when I was a drunk, they called me Ace. But when I got sober, you can't call me Ace anymore. I'm Tex now, okay? So, you know, I have to do things differently. And, uh, you know, but Tex was a very 
kind, you know, loving guy, and uh, he really tried to help me uh, every time uh, I would go back out again. He would call me on the phone, and he would say, you know, uh, how you doing out there? And it used to piss me off. You know, why is this guy sticking his nose in my business? You know, uh, I'm doing fine. You know, and he'd, then he'd say, well, uh, you know where to come when you get ready, you know. And I'd say, yeah, I know where to come. And then he'd say, did anybody tell you they love you today? And I'd say, no. And he'd say, well, I do. Even though I continued to drink, people like that in Alcoholics Anonymous planted things in me, seeds in me, that took a long time to grow. You know, I knew how to run my show. I didn't need anybody telling me how to run my show. You know, because as far as I was concerned, you know, and I had made up my mind a long time ago when I was a kid, did everybody want you to act like them and look like them and dress like them and talk like them and do what they do? And so I ain't having that. I'm going to do what I want to do. Now, I'll pretend to be whoever you want me to be so that I can use you. Because you see, what I did, and what I did for years, was I loved things and I used people. And once I used you, and I had no use for you anymore, I threw you away. I threw people away my whole life. I can remember telling Tex, you know, this came into my mind this morning, and, you know, and I just want to say that the first three men that spoke today, you know, have made me a better man today. Thank all three of you, you know, for helping me, you know, because I need that help. I need it on a daily basis. Because, like, I got a couple of my guys in here they will tell you, you know, I'm fond of saying I don't have alcoholism. I have alcoholism. It's always an ism, and it's never a wasm. And I wake up every day with untreated alcoholism, and I need to treat my alcoholism. You know, and if I don't treat my alcoholism now, when am I going to treat it? And I, uh, I always knew what the, what the answer was, you know. I told Tex, I said, you know, Tex, I, I said, you see, my problem is I'm lonely. You know, I, I'm lonely, you know. I, I, need a, I need a girlfriend or something, you know. And if I wasn't lonely, I wouldn't keep going back out and drinking again. And Tex told me, he said, well, you know what, Tom? He says, it's okay to be lonely because when you're lonely, somebody misses you or you miss somebody. But it's not okay to be alone because when you're alone, nobody misses you and you don't miss nobody. 
and you talk about a diamond cutter, I know him plenty in my time, who could smoothly insert the knife between your ribs and walk away with a smile on their face and leave you standing there thinking. And I thought about that for years. I still think about it today, you know, because I thought about it today when other guys were, were, I can't remember, probably when Russell was here, and I think it came to me because that has always been my problem. Me. I'm my problem. But that's not what I wanted the problem to be. I never wanted the problem to be me. I wanted the problem to be you. You're the problem. You see, I wouldn't have any problem if things would just work out my way. You know, and I don't know how come I spent so many years going in and out of AA and I just never seemed to learn anything. I mean, yeah, there were things that were put there, and I think in my subconscious, and that took a long time, you know, to germinate and to grow. But I didn't learn anything because I wasn't here to get sober. That's not what I was here for. I was just here to get out of trouble. You know, I was not in Alcoholics Anonymous in those first 10 years. I shouldn't even use the the terminology in and out, okay, because I was never in. I was just around. I was just a hanger around. I, You know, this is your clubhouse. I'd hang around in your clubhouse for some place to go so that I could stay out of the bars, you know. I guess I'm a little bit like my grandfather, you know. My, My father used to see... His father, sleeping in doorways on Skid Row. Of course, you know, he'd tell you, you know, he went to his grave at 91 hating his father. He'd tell you, oh, my father's uh, drinking, and I have a sister who lives over here in Hutchison Island. She's sober 33 years. The two of us would sit with my dad, and we'd try to talk about alcoholism being a family disease, and he would say... My father's drinking didn't bother me because mother wouldn't allow him home if he was drinking. Because my sweet old Irish grandmother, she wouldn't divorce him. You know, so he was periodic and he had a barber shop and he'd just lock up the barber shop and go live on Skid Row and stay drunk. You know, and my father told me a story about how he stayed sober. He died the year I was born in 1952 and and how he stayed uh, stayed dry for seven years, never drank the last seven years of his life. My father said when he went up to the funeral and to the grave, the, the town librarian was there because he used to leave every day. Nobody talked to him because they hated him from all his years of, of alcoholism. In fact, my mother told me, uh, my, my father moved from Rock Island, Illinois, to Springfield, Illinois. Springfield's where I was born. My father, my mother told me she always liked the old man. She never knew him as a drunk. She said she couldn't understand why my father's family hated him so much. That when the family came from Rock Island to Springfield, he had to ride the bus to the wedding. 
He didn't even get to ride in the family car. So they didn't give a damn, you know, where he was going every day. My father met the town librarian at the grave, and he said, I didn't know you knew my father. And she said, oh, yeah, I knew him real well. The past seven years, he read almost every book on the shelf. He was hanging around in the library. And that's what I was doing, hanging around in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, but not changing, just hanging around, waiting for the next drunk waiting until I was out of trouble, waiting until everything was fixed, waiting until I got a license back, I got a car back, I got some money back, I got a girlfriend back, I got a job back, I got my parents off my back, I got the judge off my back. Then I'd get right back to doing what I always did. And so the pain of my alcoholism is what got me sober. That's what got me sober, is the pain of my alcoholism. Then I'm very fond of saying it was the pain of my assholeism that taught me I needed to change my character. Because once I did start to want this, okay, which because really, you know, things had occurred. You know, God intervened in my life. I got divine intervention sitting in a jail cell after all these years of being around AA and never getting sober. You know, progression, you know, if you, if you, progression will get you sober. If you survive alcoholism, progression will finally get you sober because you will have so much pain from alcoholism that you will either die. Or get sober. And so, you know, the periods of time that I could spend out there, they got shorter because I went to the bottom faster. And the periods of time that I could spend in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, they got shorter too because it's hard to sit around in these rooms not drinking and being so full of crap. And you know you are. And you know you're just uh, talking the talk, but you're not walking the walk, you know, and you're just playing around, waiting. You're in the waiting room, waiting to leave again. But the progression played a game on me. It took me to the place where I no longer could stop anymore. I couldn't stop. I could no longer stop. And I used to sit in the, in the old American Legion Central House on, on Federal Highway in Delray, and I would tell the people in there, I'm never going to drink again. And I'd get up and I'd walk right down the street and into a bar and tell myself, I'm just going in here to listen to music because I'm lonely. I need some companionship. I didn't want to hang around with them AA people telling me all these things about me that I didn't like to hear. You know, like the man who told me one day, he said, you know what your problem is, Tom? You know, people in AA love to tell you about what your problem is because they got the same problem. I said, no, what's my problem? He says, your problem is you, you, you think you're unique. 
And I said, well, I don't see how that's a problem, you know. I mean, I like being unique. My whole body's tattooed, you know, and I, I don't look like you, dress like you. I'm, I'm not, I'm, I, that's cool being unique. I'm hip, slick, and cool. He said, yeah, but you see, the kind of uniqueness you got is terminal. You got terminal uniqueness. It's killing you. Because you think you don't have to do the same thing that the rest of us have to do to get sober and to stay sober here. You think you can do things your way. And, you know, I thought, well, you know, who the hell is he talking to? My way's my way's fine. I don't see anything wrong with my way. I'm 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 okay right now. All right? I'm dealing with things. I'm getting my shit back. I'm fixing my life. I'm 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 doing I'm not drinking. You know, and and and, and now I couldn't I couldn't stop. I couldn't stop, and I'm sitting in a jail cell again, waiting to go to the county jail on attempted burglary charges. And I'm sitting there thinking about, you know, what is my problem? Why can't I run my life? Why can't I uh, make things happen right for me? Okay? And And a whisper spoke to me in my mind, in my mind. Up here. Spoke to me in a voice that wasn't mine. And said, you know what your problem is, Tom? Your problem is you're crazy. That's what your problem is. And the reason that you're crazy is because you think you know how to run your life. But you can't. But you believe that you can. And that's why you're insane. Nice, yep. That's right. That's the truth about me. So the truth about me is not only am I powerless over alcohol, that once I start to take it in me, but that my way doesn't work either. My way and my thinking does not work. You see... I have alcoholic thinking. I don't think like a normal person. My first thoughts are always alcoholic thoughts. I, I have alcoholism. It's a disease that's centered in my mind. And it's a talking disease. It talks to me. And it tells me, I know how to run my life. I know what I need. I just need more of it. Because some of it is good, so more of it's got to be better. So if I could just get the right car, the right amount of money, the right clothes, more tattoos, okay, more jewelry, you know, more sex... You know, more prestige, you know. If you would just kiss my ass, everything would be wonderful. Don't you know who the hell I am? I'm God's gift. I am the egomaniac with an inferiority complex. 
I learned this about me. Of course, I couldn't learn anything about me because I wasn't doing any work to learn anything about me. And I couldn't do any work because I had no honesty, no open-mindedness or willingness. I didn't have the key ingredients to start to get sober because I didn't have the first step. And, and I harp on this first step constantly. I harp on it constantly because we got to have it 100%. If every day that I don't believe these things about me, that not only am I powerless over alcohol, but my thinking doesn't work, my way doesn't work, if I don't believe that constantly on a daily basis, I'm in big trouble, big trouble. If I think the job's done, if I think I'm good, I'm finished because the job's not finished until they throw the dirt in my face. That's when the job will be finished because I ain't getting rid of this alcoholism. It ain't going away. You know, I, I heard a man, a great guy that, that, that I was brought to a long time ago, Named Bob Anderson, who's long dead now from Los Angeles. And I heard, I used to listen to all his tapes. I read his book, A Mind-Powered Disease. Because that's what I have, is a mind-powered disease. See? I got this alcoholism. And it's a thinking disease. It's talking to me all the time. And I wake up every morning thinking about who? Thinking about me. I don't know who in the hell you think about all day, but I know who I think about. I think about me. I wake up in the morning thinking about me, and I go to bed at night thinking about me. Everything is me, 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 me. And the only time I think about you is in how it relates to me. Unless I learn to practice something different. And that's what the steps the living the steps. Now, I learned from Bob Anderson the same thing. We do a disservice to Alcoholics Anonymous to even say, work the steps. Like we're going to work it and it's over with. And the steps are done. And we get a gold star. And we graduate. Thank God that I had a, a sponsor. You know, I, God brought a sponsor into my life that showed me the way. Finally, once I got honest and I got open-minded and I got willing and I got out of the VA hospital <laughs> after two months and an old man saved my life, old man who lives up here now named Dennis O. You know, he saved my life because I went to go to walk back in the old Legion Center house and he stood in the doorway. He stood in the doorway. And when I went to walk in, he, walked, he stepped in my, in my way. And I, I said, what are you doing? He says, you don't want to get sober. I says, what are you talking about? I've been sober two months. He says, yeah, in the VA hospital, that don't count. Probably had you on an abuse. I said, they did. He said, well, what are you going to do now? And I said, well, what do you want me to do? And he said, all I want you to do is what I've been trying to tell you for years to do. I didn't even know he'd been trying to tell me anything for years to do. 
And I said, what's that? And he said, get on your knees and ask God for the strength to stay clean and sober. And I'm still so rebellious after all of these years, 10 years of it, and, and, and finally coming to this knowledge of myself, I'm still so rebellious about God that I say to him, I don't see how that's going to do any good. And he said, well, how's your way been working, wise guy? How's your way been working for you? Well, you know, I had that. I finally had that where I could admit that my way hadn't been working for me. And I said, I guess you're right. My way ain't been working. And then he said, one of the greatest things ever told to me. He said, well, I guess it doesn't make any difference what you believe in then, does it? Because what you believe in doesn't work. So you know what? I'm not asking you to believe in anything. This isn't about what you're going to believe in. This is about what are you willing to do. Are you just willing to do it and be sincere when you do it? Just try to be sincere. Can you do that? I said, yeah, I can do that. I can do that. That's what I did. I lived with the obsession to... Just like I'd had, you know, all the years around and ever since I was 14. And I went to meetings every day and I went to work. And all of a sudden something happened one day. I realized that I hadn't thought about it. And I couldn't remember when the last time was. And I began to weep. And I knew that because I'd done something that I didn't believe in, that somebody else suggested to me that I do, had worked. And that my God did love me. See, I always had this belief in God, but I didn't believe that God believed in me. I never felt like this God I had was concerned with me. I had this God that I had a huge resentment towards. I didn't have a loving God. And I had to find a new God. I found that God when I came to believe that a power greater than myself would restore me to sanity. And then I found this man in a meeting I went to and I ran into him and I says I know you and he said yeah I know you too he said you were chairing a meeting a few years ago and asked me to speak and I came to speak and you didn't show up I said yeah I know I got drunk <laughs> and he I asked him you know if he'd have coffee with me you know and, and he said okay and uh I asked him uh, because, you know, I knew that I had to work the steps. I had to work the steps. I knew that this is where it was now, you know, was that Dennis had took me for, through the first three steps. We got on our knees in the American Legion Hall, you know, after the men's meeting one Sunday morning, you know, and we formally did the third step. And, and Dennis was busy. He said, now you've got to go find a sponsor, teach you the rest of the steps. And I ran into this man. And uh, 
we went and had coffee and he, and we started talking about the steps and and he talked uh, he talked about how he'd gone to bark bark had a a step program in those days and how he had spent 9 months you know every week going to bark learning the steps and i thought anybody that's crazy enough to go someplace for 9 months learning these steps must know what the hell he's talking about and i need him I need him to teach me about these steps. And so I started taking direction from him. You know. And he used to have all kinds of crazy things I thought were crazy. And so did everybody else in AA that I used to talk to. I'd say, you know what he's got me doing? He's got me doing this, doing that. They'd say, oh, I'd fire him. I stopped seeing them a long time ago, Okay. No, somehow I'm still here. He's still around. You know, after all these years, and uh, I remember saying to him one time, I said, "You know, his name was Tom too, Tommy." I said, "You know what, Tom? You sure expect an awful lot out of me." And he said, "Tom, he said, all I expect out of you is for you to change your whole effing personality, <laughs> because your whole effing personality needs changing." You know, well, I'm still working on that. After 32 years, I'm still working on changing this personality. You know, God has not seen fit to render me white as snow. You know, I uh, I get to the eighth step, and you know, after after a lot of this work, you know, that that we've done, you know, I. Really, I tell you, I, uh, the sixth and the seventh, I thought, yeah, I thought I knew what I was doing with that. You know, I thought, ah, oh, this is nothing. But I, I found out different from him. You know, with what, the things that he had me to do. But my assignment today is eight and nine, so I'm going to try and stay on my assignment. Because <laughs> eight and nine, this is crazy, you know, to me as as the rest have been. I says, you know, well, you know I me, mean? the stage step. I'm going to make a list of people I'm supposed to say I'm sorry to, right? Isn't that what it is? That's, what, that's the way I interpreted the, the, the eighth step. Make a list of all the persons I'd harm, become willing to make amends to them. I'm just going to write down everybody's name that I need to tell them I'm sorry. You know, and I was good at that. I'd been telling people that I was sorry for years, you know. Please, I'm sorry. How many times have I told my folks, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm, sorry, I'm not going to do it again, I'm sorry. You know, and I says, oh, you know, I, yeah. I, I, he says, well, wait a minute. He says, uh, that's not the list I want you to make. I said, well, what do you mean that's not the list you want me to make? He said, I want you to make a list of all the people that owe amends to you. And I said, but that's not what the step says. And he said, who's the sponsor? And I said, you are. And he goes, that's right. Then you'll make the list that I want. And so I said, okay. And he said, and of course, with everything with us was prayer. 
You know, we, we never sat down to do anything or, or to write anything until we prayed first and asked God for help because I need God's help. I need God's help on a daily basis, you know. God's my, my top sponsor, and I need his help every time. Before I came up here, I was in there asking God to help me. That's what I was always taught to do. Before proceeding anything I do, I need to ask God to be with me. Open my mind. Help me to be honest. Because I have a hard time with being honest. Because I have a disease. It's a lying disease. It likes to lie. It likes to tell me all kinds of stuff to try to make me look good, you know, so that you'll like me. And I come up with all these people. Man, I had this huge list of all these people because, you know, I had been wronged a lot. And you got to understand something about me. Justifiable anger is my thing. I am a fire-breathing maniac. You know, when they had me in the VA hospital, uh, you know, they had a therapeutic community in there, which we elected our own officers, you know. And, of course, they elected me president because I knew so much about AA. I was a genius when it came to AA, you know. Couldn't stay sober, but I could sit with you all night long and tell you about all the shit you needed to do to stay sober, okay? And I, and I was more than happy to do that, to sit there and just tell you all about yourself, you know, and what you needed to do. So we used to have these guys they called ward boys. The ward boys are, are, are the guys that work in the psychiatric ward and who are alcoholics and veterans themselves, but are sober in AA, and they're the, they're the babysitters at night. And, uh, you know, I was walking down the hallway one night when two of them snatched me, opened an empty room, pushed me inside and shoved me in a chair and got over me. And they said, you know what, Tom, you need to shut the F up. Stop sitting around here talking to everybody about them because that's how you're staying sick. You need to start talking about you. You need to start putting a focus on you. Because, you see, I was a maniac. I'm sitting there in those morning meetings, you know, and there's a guy comes in there in, the, in that morning meeting. And everybody shares in that morning meeting, the psychiatrist, the psychologist, the counselors. You know, they all share. We all share. But not this guy who comes in. This guy comes in. He sits in the back over there, and he's got a notebook. And he's making notes in that notebook. And I'm focusing on him. What's he writing in that notebook? He's probably writing stuff about me in that notebook. And I'm hating this guy who's sitting over there. I've never heard him open his mouth, but I'm hating him. Because obviously, he's got something to do with being after me. See? And after a couple of weeks, you know what it is? They say, we're going to have a class on assertiveness. And I don't even know what the hell the word assertiveness means because I got a four-letter vocabulary by now. I'm a rum-dum all the way, okay? 
And we go down the basement, the 35 of us or so, and here's this guy. I said, oh, here's this guy standing there. And he's standing there, you know, and we all go in the room, and he, and he, and he, he says, he, he writes his name on the chalkboard, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm just hating this guy. Like, what, what the hell does he think? We're in high school or something, you know, Mr. So-and-so he's got up there. You know, and then he writes one. And he makes some hash marks, and he writes five, and he makes some more hash marks, and he writes ten. And at the top of one, he puts passive. At the top of five, he puts assertive. And at the top of ten, he puts aggressive. Then he turns around and he says, now all of you alcoholics, oh, man, I'm really disliking this guy now. Because now he ain't even an alcoholic, right? I mean, I'm, I'm ten years around AA. I know that I don't need to be listening to somebody except another alcoholic. I don't need some guy who ain't an alcoholic preaching to me. He says, all of you alcoholics fall in this category somewhere. In, in this, these degrees, a one being the most passive, and you're the most dangerous guys in here. You're the guys that I can look at you right now and your jaw bones are going. The muscles are you're grinding your teeth. And you just stuff everything. And you just keep stuffing everything until one day, you know, it all blows up out the side of your neck and some poor bastard catches it all that 20 people should have been dealt with. You need to learn to step it up and learn to be assertive and learn to tell people about things that are bothering you in a mannerly way. And you other people down here, the aggressive people, you need to learn to calm down, okay? Calm down and just learn to be assertive. And you, he turns and points at me, he says, you're the most aggressive man in this community. And I doubt that you'll stay sober. And I said, oh, yeah, F you. <laughs> I was such an aggressive maniac that I would jump down your throat with both boots to prove to you that you were wrong and I was right. I argued with all the old-timers in AA for years, and they would pat me on the back and they'd say, that's okay, Tom, you got a right to be wrong. <laughs> and I used to think, what do they mean by that smart aleck crap, I got a right to be wrong? Because I didn't have any concept of being wrong. I had to be right. You had to be wrong. You know, and so I had come a long way. By the time I'm with Tommy on the eighth step, believe me, I have come a long way. And I have come a long way, believe it or not, in the past 32 years, even though you think I'm a maniac. <laughs> Just from listening to me. Because I am. And I can be. You know, the only thing is that I had to learn a long time ago you know, how to be assertive and how to calm down and how to use it when it needed to be used to emphasize. You know, my God has a great sense of humor. I'm a union man, 40 years in the laborers' union. I've been in office 28 years. I'm the business manager. 
and you ought to be in one of my union meetings and hear me rant and rave. I'm one of them old-time guys that pounds the table and the podium, and I can raise the roof. I can shout up 30 stories. I pulled strikes, and I, I do all kinds of things. But I, I came up the bad way. You know, in the old days, they'd tell me, you know, you need to send a guy a message. And I'd write your name on a block and drop it 20 floors. You'd get the message. That's the kind of guy I was. And I had to learn how to be a different kind of guy. I don't know. You know, I don't know how it is that uh, somebody that was raised like me. Listen, I started out at St. Agnes in kindergarten. I went to Catholic schools my whole life, all the way through the 12th grade. I had great teachers, the Christian brothers, you know. I had catechism all the time. Yet, I was so sick that I had completely lost sense of what is right and what is wrong in this life. And it's due to this huge, huge problem called my defects of character that I learned in my fourth step. That I have three main defects of character. That all my life I condemned myself. I had self-condemnation. Somehow, you know, the way this disease of alcoholism worked on me, I was always condemning myself. And so I had to build all this false pride. I had to build a character. And I built this character from the ground up. This tough guy, crazy character. Because deep down inside, I was so afraid that you would find out what I thought of me, that I had to be something that was totally different when you looked at me than what was going on inside of me. And I copped the resentment over it all. Self-condemnation, false pride, and resentment. And how, how has that changed? Because, you see, I never changed out of virtue. I only changed out of pain. Pain changed me. Until the program alcoholics taught me that through the practice of virtue, I didn't have to feel the pain anymore. What I learned is that my God removes my defects of character through my practice. I'm not capable of that. He is. But it only happens through my practice of virtue. And I'm not a virtuous person. Because I have alcoholism, because I can't stop thinking about me. And so I have to practice thinking about you. I don't know how I, how I, you know, seem to have forgotten. And I know over the years, a lot of that's come back to me. 
You know, and, and, I, and I, was, I was told that what I needed to do was I needed to forgive all of these people that I felt had offended me and had owed me amends. That I needed to forgive them. That I needed to learn how to forgive. That I needed to learn how to be tolerant. I had no idea of tolerance. I had no idea of acceptance. You know, my sponsor told me, he said, you know what your problem with acceptance is, Tom? I said, what, what's my problem with acceptance? He said, your problem with acceptance is you think you need to approve. You don't need to approve. You don't need to approve of a damn thing. You don't need to approve of these people or uh, uh, approve of what they do or approve of the way this is or approve of the way that is. That's not what you need to do. You need to accept that people have a right to their own opinion. (laughs) A right to exist. That it's okay that the world's full of people that are different than you are. Because, you see, that's the kind of guy I was. I couldn't accept a you unless I approved of you. Unless you were exactly the way I thought you ought to be. Because, you see, I love to feel that anger. That justifiable anger is, 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 is a potent thing. It's seductive. That justifiable anger pulls me in. It makes me feel powerful. It makes me feel better then. It's where my false pride came from to deal with my self-condemnation. It's where this character comes from that I built, you know, this righteous indignation. I can remember in the years I was around AA in the old fifth chapter one night in a midnight meeting, I heard a man in there say that he couldn't afford to feel justifiable anger anymore. And the first thought that went through my mind was, what is he, a sissy or something? What's his problem? See, mean he can't afford to feel justifiable anger. Because that's what my life was about. It makes me high. I sit around and talk about, you know, I love what, what Russell was talking about. That's exactly the way we were in the bar. We sit around and talk about every bomb. You know, he's a bomb. Everybody was a worse drunk than me. Oh, you know, so-and-so, he did this, he did that. Oh, we're so happy to talk about somebody else. Let's talk. Let's see who we can talk about. Let's see whose character we can assassinate today. Let's see who's back that we can stand up on to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. Because the truth is, exactly in a very simple way that I was taught, that if you want to build real self-esteem, you do esteemable things. And I never did esteemable things. I did selfish and self-centered things. Things that satisfied me. 
How is it that I lost this? Charity doth not look for excuses. It does not attempt to make right out of wrong, nor does it make wrong out of right. Being humble, it always searches for the truth, for humility is the truth. St. Paul tells us that there remain faith, hope, and charity. These three, but the greatest of these, is charity. This fact is borne out very dramatically in Christ's description of the judgment. In describing the judgment of the condemned soul, he does not say, Depart from me because you have sinned through weakness, but he explicitly states, Depart from me because I was hungry and you gave me not to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me not to drink. I was a stranger and you took me not in. I was naked and you clothed me not. I was sick and you did not visit me. I was in prison and you came not to see me. How did I lose that? Catechism every day. And all that washed away by alcoholism. Washed away by my alcoholism. And this is what it's about. This is what this is about. That's what this is about. <laughs> we want to think it's about something else. But this is what it's about. It's about a spiritual life. And the spiritual life is not a theory. We must live it. We must live it. That's why they talk about a principle of the eighth step of brotherly love. I need to learn how to love. Charity isn't nothing but love. My sponsor told me, you know what, Tom? You're an intolerant son of a bitch. He was one of those diamond cutters. You're an intolerant son of a bitch. You need to learn to practice tolerance because tolerance is an act of charity. Well, like what I was reading from was Father John Doe. Mike taught me to let you know what I'm reading from, sobriety and beyond. As Father John Doe says, tolerance is the minimum of love, the minimum. Dennis O. used to say to us all the time, what is Alcoholics Anonymous all about? Alcoholics Anonymous is all about people. And what are people all about? People are all about God. And what's God all about? God's all about love. And that's what this is all about. Because I never knew how to love anybody. I wasn't capable of love. 
And the reason I wasn't capable of love, because I was not capable of sacrifice. Because all I could think about is me all the time. Me, 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 me. What's in it for me? When's my ship come in? When do I get to pay off? I like to get high. What do you think I started shooting dope for? Because I could get high right now. Soon as that needle went in my arm and I hit that plunger down, bang! I want it now. And I want to feel good now. And I'm all about that. That's what I'm all about. And what I have to practice is a new way of life. It's an AA way of life. It's a spiritual life. It's not a theory. I have to live it. And I go, I go, you know, to start making my amends, my direct amends. And, and, and when, I, when I made the list, you see, I mean, I had direct amends. They mainly were my family. My family were the ones that I really owed my direct amends to. Those are the people that I hurt the most was my family. My family was always there for me. Always bailing me out. My father never told me he loved me, but he was always there for me. Listen, let me tell you something. I'm sitting in a courtroom in Peoria, Illinois. I haven't seen my old man in a couple of years. He's living down here. I'm waiting to go to the penitentiary. I'm waiting to be sentenced. I'm sitting there waiting to stand up in front of the judge so he can sentence me. And in the courtroom walks my father from Florida with a lawyer. And they go up and talk to the judge. They go up and talk to the judge, and then they go and sit down, and the judge brings me up, and he says, Mr. Matthews, he says, uh, you got two choices. You can go to the Illinois Penitentiary, or you can go to Florida with your father. Don't ever come back. I said, well, I guess I'm going to Florida. always there for me. And so, you know, I, 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 I had to make those direct amends, but I had, I had not been a nice person. I had always been a hoodlum. I like the stuff Jim was talking about. I identified a lot. I'd always been a bad guy. I always ran with the wrong guys. I was always a big dope dealer, pounds and pounds. I was always in some criminal thing, you know. I was always in the army. They were always trying to put me in prison, blah, blah, blah. I could tell you a million drunk log stories. I wasn't a nice guy, and I didn't, I, and, I, and I, I, was, I was just like the guy in the big book, you know, that came up out of the storm cellar. Ma, ain't it grand the wind stopped blowing? I don't see nothing wrong here. But there was a lot wrong. There was a lot of damage. My direct men's, you know, made directly to my family and, 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 you know, some of those things. But I had huge things that I had done to nameless, faceless people. And I thought, 
You know, I even said that when I was making the list. Well, you know, what about, I, I, there's all these other people, you know, I mean, I, you know, I can't, I'll never see them. I, put them on the list. But, I, but you know what I'm saying? I said, put them on the list. They go on the list. This is, this is the eighth step. It's not the ninth step. We'll worry about the ninth step when we get to the ninth step. They go on the list. All the bartenders, all the cops, all the, all the people I turned into heroin addicts. You don't know how many people I turned into heroin addicts. So they'd buy from me. All the people that I robbed. And, you know, I didn't know who they were. I, would, I couldn't have gone to find them to make a direct amends to them, you know. But they had to go on the list. And then we get to talking about it, and I go, now, how, how, I can't, how am I supposed to do anything about them? I can't do anything about them. I can't make any amends to them. And he said, who says you can't make any amends to them? And I said, well, how am I supposed to make amends? I don't even know who the hell they are. I don't even know all the things I did. You know, I, I used to wake up in the morning, and the first thing I'd look to see if I could find my glasses. You know, because like Jim, you know, I, I used to piss the bed and sleep in the bathroom <laughs> on the floor. Find those glasses, you know, and I put those glasses on, and then I go look out the window to see if the car was there because, you know, one time I lost a car for two weeks. You know, we're drinking in a joint, and the guy says, You want to go downtown? And I'd have people take me all over town to every bar looking for my car. And we go out in the alley, and there's my car in the alley. One morning I get up, and the, the back seat is covered in blood. Hand stains on the windows. I don't know what I did. I was a terrible blackout drunk. I did a lot of terrible things. Things that I needed to find a way. And my sponsor knew that. He said, the amends that you'll make are spiritual amends. And God will show you how that's done. My God has shown me for many, many years, and he continues to show me how to make those amends. When I first went, I told my sponsor, I said, I really, you know, because the old man always stood by me. Everybody stood by me. My family, you know, that's, those are the people that don't give up on you until they can't, they just can't take you anymore. Until they finally figure out that the only way you're going to get help is if they give up on you. My mother, I remember, you know, my sister and I are both alcoholics, and my mother went to Al-Anon, and, and they told her, this isn't about helping them. This is about helping you, because you need help. You need to throw them out. She left Al-Anon. She said, no, that, you don't understand. You don't understand. These are my children. My mother, God rest her soul, almost loved me to death. My greatest enabler. Nice, sweet, well-bred woman. 
come down on Skid Row looking for me. Hauling me out of joints. Sometimes I'd see her coming down the street. I'd run and hide in the bathroom. And they'd come in and they'd tell her, she'd tell him, I know he's in here. And if you don't get him out, I'm going to have the cops down here. Well, they wouldn't want the cops because they had more than booze going on. They'd drag me out. Your mother's here. Go with your mother. Get out of here. She'd take me home and I'd cry and carry on. Oh, the tears. Oh, I'll never do it again. Oh, I'm so sorry, you know. And, and she'd get me feeling good and get me well. And as soon as her back was turned, I'm gone again. One time I didn't come home for, uh, I don't know, a few years. And I was out bumming around, you know, all over the country. And, and uh, I, you know, I had a big beard and real long hair. And I'm hitching on I-10 somewhere, you know, outside New Orleans. And I run into this other hippie, you know. He's sitting on his, on his backpack, you know. And, and I said, he said, man, you know, I had a pint. I said, you got anything to smoke? Yeah, you know. So we're smoking, drinking. I says, how about we partner up, you know. I said, where are you going? He says, I'm just out here, man. And I said, let's go to the Keys. I said, besides, my mother lives in Coral Springs. We can stop on the way, you know. She'll put us up. And uh, so we hitched down there. We went out to my mother's, and, and, and I'll never forget as long as I live. I knocked on the door, and my mother came to the door, and she looked right in my face and said, Can I help you? I said, Ma, it's me. Oh, my God. What have you done to yourself? And who's this bum? That never stopped her from putting us up. You know, my father, I says, I can't talk to him. You know, I can't talk to him. You know, I don't know how to talk to this man, you know, because my father was, uh, it was not the, he didn't talk about emotional things. He, you know, he didn't do that. He was an adult child of an alcoholic. His emotions are very close to the best. And, uh, so my sponsor says, well, write him a letter. So I said, okay. So I wrote him this four-page letter, you know, and I went on and on about all these, how sorry I was and all the things that I did and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and I took it over to him, and he, he, I said, I got something I want you to read, Dad. And he said, okay. He says, come in here. You know, I had a little den, and I, I went in the den with him and sat down. He got the letter out, and he... He read it all very carefully. He did things very methodically, you know, and folded it all back up, put it back in the envelope, and he stood up and he handed it to me, and he said, that's real nice, Tom. And he walked out. And I was devastated. My heart was broken. I went to my sponsor, and I told him about it, and he said, well, you know what, Tom? He said, you just got a good lesson. He said, because you see, you went there looking for forgiveness. And that's not what this is about. This ninth step ain't about forgiveness. It ain't about you being forgiven. It's about you changing your life. And you know, uh, the years went by and my time went on and 
things got great. They got wonderful. I've had a wonderful, wonderful life in Alcoholics Anonymous. So much love and family and my sons and my wife and, you know, God has really blessed me. I mean, I have been totally, totally blessed by being a part of this, by living this way of life. My God has done for me what I could have never imagined. He's given me everything I ever needed. Not what I wanted, but what I needed. Thank God. Thank God I didn't get all the stuff I wanted. And my parents, you know, they became so close to me and my children and and my wife. I mean, uh, my wife's in the program, too, and. And she, both her parents were alcoholics, and she lost her sister to an overdose and lost her parents a long time ago. And my parents took my wife in. They loved my wife, just like, just like my wife was their daughter. My mother would call on the phone, and I'd answer, and she'd say, Is Kathy there? And I'd go, Jesus Christ, you don't even want to talk to me. You, know, you act like Kathy's your daughter, you know? She is. They were like, the, and then you know when they got old and and uh, and my wife would take care of them and we, and we took care of them. You know, we they lived here in Stewart and we moved them back down to Delray so that we'd have them close to us and and we'd take meals over there all the time. And my mom was. My mom was uh, was good in the head, but she was bad in the body. Her, she was blind and she was crippled. And my dad was great in the body, but he was going in the head. You know, my mother called me. Your father's driving me crazy. Your father left hours ago. I don't know where he is. I'd say, well, he'll find his way or we'll get a silver alert, you know. We were on 95 one day and dad goes... Is this Congress? I go, no, this ain't Congress, Dad. This is 95 now. I mean, he'd only been here since 1972, okay? And it, the money drove him crazy because he grew up dirt poor in the Depression, you know, his father. My grandmother, you know, God rest her soul, she was a wonderful woman. She worked till she was 87, I think, you know, selling women's clothes. Took care of them all during the Depression. She used to say, you know, there's two kind of Irish. Lace curtain and shanty. And we ain't lace curtain. But just because you're poor don't mean you got to be dirty. Soap don't cost much money, you know. She was a great lady. But they, uh, he used to go to the bank every day and ask about his money, you know. And my mother says, he's driving, driving them nuts. He's over there. He's moving the money all the time. You know, and then she called me one day and she says, you you got to come over here. He's got $20,000 sitting on the kitchen table, you know. And, and so I go over there and, I, you know, and, and he had this clarity because he, he understood that it was driving him insane. And he had this clarity and he asked me, you take it. You take over everything. I can't do it. I said, okay. 
So I took over everything. I paid all the bills, you know. I took care of, of him, and he got sick, and he'd never been sick a day in his life, you know. And he got sick at 91, and uh, they had him up in the Boca Hospital. And he hated the hospital. I mean, he he just, he you know, he hated doctors, you know. He hated, he, he wouldn't have, listen, when I was a kid, if if you you had to be dying to be able to stay home, and I mean puking your guts out and stuff, and and then you still got out of bed, made your bed, and put your clothes on, okay? Because it's in your mind. You're as well as you make up your mind to be. So don't act like you're sick. Act like you're fine. Wonder where that message came from. Everything's fine here. The old man's down there sleeping in the doorway on Skid Row. Don't worry about it. Everything's fine. He ain't allowed home here until he sobers up. You know, and, uh, and, and, and I mean, he had a pick that ran to his heart. They, he yanked it out nine times. They, they, they had to put him on Holodol, you know, chemical restraints. Had his hands all balled up like boxing gloves. And uh, I was in Orlando, and uh, they called me, and they said, uh, there's nothing else we can do for him. He needs to go to hospice. And I said, okay, I'll come there tomorrow. And I came uh, up to the hospital, and, of course, I'm, I'm making the arrangements, and and I meet with the hospice person, and I'm making the arrangements with the hospice person, and and uh, they know that he's going to hospice. So the night before, they'd take it, taken him off the holodol. So I said, I'm going to go in and see him, you know. And it's kind of dark in his room, and it's early in the morning, and uh, so he got his hands all balled up, and he's go and he's going, come here, come here. Lean down here, and, and I lean down, and he, he looks me in the eye, and he says, I'm done. I says, I know you're done. But it's okay. I'm going to have you put someplace where nobody's going to bother you anymore. And everything will be all right. And he looked me in the eye, and he told me, he said, I knew I could count on you. And I knew my amends had been made. It took 28 years to make them. But they had been made. That's what this is about. The way I live my life is the way I make my amends. Thanks for letting me share today. Thank you, Tom. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, let's do a 10-minute break and uh, come back for the next speaker.